Well, thank you so much, Dr. Patterson, for those uh, kind words. Uh, I love Dr. Patterson. Uh, I've known him since I was a little boy. Uh, <laughs> my mama used to carry me to hear him preach when I was just real young. And I can uh, remember sitting down my mama's lap, looking up in your face, Dr. Patterson, and uh, I just love old people. I don't know why. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that old folks say funny things? Uh, we don't mean to say funny things, but old folks say funny things. I heard about these two old guys the other day were real old, and they were sitting on the back porch talking. And one of them turned to the other, and he said, Bob, I can never remember. Was it you or your brother that was killed in World War II? <laughs> Now, the sad thing is, is some of you didn't catch that, so uh, <laughs> I'm honored to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Patterson. I, I'm deeply honored to be here. I want you to open your Bibles today to the book of Psalm, and I want to read just a couple of three verses out of Psalm 37. If you have a Bible, I wish you'd turn, please, to that scripture, Psalm 37, and I want to read the first uh, four verses. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself in the Lord, also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. If I lived till July of this year, I will have been preaching for 63 years. And in all of these years, I do not recall a single occasion where I've sensed a greater apprehension, discouragement, and downheartedness as I see as I travel across the country. These are difficult days we're living in. They're hard days politically. Other than the Great Depression and the Civil War and perhaps the Vietnam conflict, this nation has never been quite as divided as we are today. Politicians hate one another and we hate the politicians. Somebody said the other day that a guy in Washington, D.C. took a gun, walked out on the street, put it in the face of a man and said, give me all your money. And the guy said, you can't have my money. I'm a U.S. congressman. He said, well, then give me all my money. <laughs> the thing about that is not too funny. These are difficult days culturally. The values that you taught your children and your mom and daddy taught you are now questioned and laughed at and scoffed at and made fun of. And anybody who dares to say a word contrary to it is declared bigoted and narrow-minded and unbelieving. These are hard days spiritually. I don't know of a day in my life as a Christian where I've seen more heartache and trouble in churches than we're having today. Last year, almost 9,000 Southern Baptist churches did not baptize one single solitary person. We are in a dearth among our Baptist churches as well as other churches. These are bad days. I don't have to tell you they're bad days. 
But the wonderful thing about it is that the psalmist addresses that rather explicitly. He gave us some instructions on what we're to do in bad times. How is a Christian to act? What are we to do and how do we speak in a day when things are not good? Well, thankfully, he gives us several little observations in the scripture that I want to read and show you today. I don't want to say just a brief word about what to do in bad times. Number one, the psalmist says we are to refrain from fretting. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Don't be envious against the workers of iniquity. Now that word fretting is a very intriguing word. It is a word that describes something that inwardly vexes a person, causes you to rage inside. We have a little phrase in our English language that describes it pretty well. Have you ever said when something happened to you, that just burns me up? Well, that's a pretty good accurate translation of what fretting is all about. Something that inwardly burns you up and causes you to be agitated. And God said, I don't want you to do that. Now, why do you think God would specifically say to his children, I don't want you to fret? Well, there must be something about fretting that God doesn't like. And I want to show you three things about fretting. Number one, fretting corrupts your spirit. Did you notice in the King James Version that I read out of an intriguing way he put that? If you had said it or I had said it, we probably wouldn't have said it that way. We probably would have said, don't fret or fret not. But now notice the construction of the King James Version says, fret not thyself. In other words, he seems to be saying that when you fret, you're fretting toward yourself. You hurt yourself more than the one you're fretting toward. It corrupts your spirit. You ever been around a fretful person? They make life miserable for everybody. I asked a guy the other day in a revival where I was preaching, I said, sir, how are you feeling? That's the last word I said. <laughs> About 35 minutes later, he'd finished his medical report. Ladies and gentlemen, it corrupts your spirit when you fret, and God don't want you to fret because it makes you corrupted in your attitude. But now there's a second thing. Not only does it corrupt your spirit, but it's contagious to the saints. Have you ever noticed that a fretful person almost always makes somebody else fretful also? Have you pastors ever preached a wonderful sermon and you were feeling good and some old irate member met you at the door and shook your hand and said, wasn't much to your sermon today, was it? And all of a sudden, that fretful man had made you fretful and it corrupted your spirit and it was contagious to you. I had that illustrated several years ago in a rather unusual way. I was over in a uh, Albany, Georgia, at a revival meeting. It's one of those services where God just sort of falls on you and it's a wonderful experience. A lot of people responded. I was so happy. And I stand at the back door shaking hands with people. Uh, at that time, I, I was a much bigger person than I am now. I'm not small by any means. I used to weigh about 400 pounds. Uh, I, I, I used to be a real, real big person. I'm a big person now, but I used to weigh about 400 pounds. Uh, I was so big that I asked my wife one morning, I said, honey, have you seen my belt around the house? She said, oh, will it go around the house now? <laughs> and I was bad news. And I had preached that morning and, uh, 
I was standing at the back door shaking hands, and this guy walked up to me. And he handed me a little piece of paper and said, Preacher, I hope you'll read this when you have a chance. And so I stuck it in my pocket and frankly forgot all about it. And when I got over to the resting area, I was so excited. Boy, we'd seen some people saved, and I was feeling so good. And, and I said, well, I wonder what that guy thought about that sermon. And so I opened it up, and here's what he wrote. Dear preacher, that was a good sermon you preached today, but it would have been a lot better if you weren't so fat. And in one second, one second, that man took me from the mountain of joy down to the valley of despair. That fretful man corrupted my spirit. Does that have happened to you? You have been feeling good, rejoicing in the Lord, and some fretful person rubbed up against you and left you with a fretful spirit yourself. It was contagious to you. But now let me tell you the flip side of that. I was up in Ohio not long after that. As a matter of fact, uh, Lord willing, I'm going back to that church Sunday morning uh, to preach again. But I was telling that story in that church about what that man said about me. And unknown to me, sitting out of the audience was a little eight-year-old girl named Molly. And with a pencil and a piece of tablet paper, she wrote me this little letter. Dear Junior Hill, you touched my heart today. I believe you are a strong man of God. Many crowns await you in heaven. Now here's the part I like best. P.S. You're not fat, ugly, nerdy, or dorky. You're handsome to me, Brother Hill. Love, Molly. Now, which one of those notes did you rather get? That's why I keep it in my Bible all of the time, just in case I cross paths with another reprobate like that. <laughs> it's contagious to the saints. But now there's a third thing about Freddie. It's confusing to sinners. Have you ever noticed that the world observes the church, what we're doing? And I wonder sometimes what the world thinks about us. We go to church and we're lifting our hands and we're praising God and boy, we're having a good time. And then they see us out in the world whining and complaining and criticizing one another. What does the world think about that? Ladies and gentlemen, if there's anybody in the world that ought to be happy, joyous, victorious, it ought to be the child of God. We got our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're on our way to a city made out of gold. Hallelujah! That's not a time to be fretting. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The world doesn't understand our fretful spirit. I was in a meeting several years ago, and the pastor said, Brother Junior, I've got a funeral, so you go to the restaurant, eat alone, sign the ticket, and I'll see you tonight. So I went to this little restaurant sat down and uh, ordered my meal, and the waitress just never came back. Now, I don't mean she did not come back soon. I mean she did not come back, period. And I was just sitting there trying to be calm and not get too excited, and 
Finally, after about 40 minutes, and I don't exaggerate to tell you, about 40 minutes, she was walking by my table, and she stopped, and she said, Oh, sir, I didn't bring your meal, did I? I said, That's all right, ma'am. Don't worry about it. I'd like to just tell you this salt shaker has 40,000 grains of salt in it. <laughs> well, she brought my meal, laid the bill down on the table. I ate. I was getting ready to get up and pay the bill, and I noticed a guy sitting across the other side of the restaurant got out. I thought he was going to pay his bill, but surprisingly, he came over to the table, reached out and picked up my bill and said, Sir, I'll get that bill. Well, I said, Sir, why would you pay my bill? Do I know you? And big old tears welled up in his eyes. He said, No, Brother Junior, you probably don't know me, but I know you. He said, 30 years ago, when I was a little eight-year-old boy, you came to my church, and I was saved. And he said, Brother Junior, I've been sitting over here watching you while you ate your meal. And I said, thank God I didn't cuss. <laughs> Somebody's watching you, folks. Now, they may not tell you that they're watching you, but they're watching you. And there ought to be something about every child of God that has the fragrance of Jesus upon us that the world would not be confused by a fretful spirit. But now there's a second thing. I've got to hurry. Not only are we to refrain from fretting, but we're to rely upon his faithfulness. Now notice what he said. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Now, that simply says that God will provide for us. I want to show you three things that God does. I wish I had time to elaborate on it, but let me just give you these in a passing word. First of all, God supplies what we don't have. Aren't you grateful that God says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory? God supplies what we don't have. But second of all, God sustains what we already have. Have you ever noticed that God has a remarkable way of taking a little bit that we have and making it go further than you would ever have dreamed that it would go? Here's what the psalmist says. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Now, how could that be true? How could a little bit in the hands of one man be more valuable than much in the hands of another man? It doesn't have anything to do with how much is in the hand. It has to do with whose hand it's in. And if it's in the hand of the child of God, a little bit will go further than much in the hands of the wicked. And I've seen that demonstrated in my life in such remarkable ways over the years. I could write a book about it. When I first started preaching 60-something years ago, I was... Uh, in little old bitty churches out in the backwoods of nowhere. I'm not talking about small churches. I'm talking about little churches, 10, 15, 20. Now, I was enjoying it and proud to be everywhere I was. And one day after I'd preached, this man walked up to me, and he said, Brother Hill, I enjoyed your sermon, and he, he shook hands with me. And I felt something in the palm of his hand. 
Now, I want to give you a Junior Hill confession for preachers. Other preachers are not going to confess. I'm going to confess to all of us. Preachers know what money feels like. And so I knew it was money. And I didn't look at it in his presence. I didn't want him to think uh, I was just all, all excited. So I just put it in my pocket. And when I got home and opened it up, it was a $100 bill. Now, at that time, I had never seen a $100 bill. I'm telling you the gospel truth. I'd heard about it. <laughs> but I actually had never seen a $100 bill. It wasn't in my radar where I grew up. And so here I held in my hand a $100 bill. And so I did what all Holy Ghost anointed godly men would do. I folded that thing up real neat and put it in the back of my pocketbook so Carol would know I had it. <laughs> now, don't you look too spiritual at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I thought, I've got $100. Well, I was so proud of that, Brother David. I just thought, I got $100. Several days later, I was this old preacher, and he was whining and complaining. He said, Brother Junior, my old car won't run. The tires are about to fall off of it. Pray for me. And God just put his head on that $100 bill. <laughs> give it to him. Lord, I don't want to give it to him. <laughs> it's mine. But you know what I had to do? I just gave it to him. I wish I could tell you it made me feel good. Didn't make me feel good at all. <laughs> made me feel bad. Several days later, another man walked up to me and said, Preacher, God's impressed me to give you this. Gave me $100. I gave that one away. Now, I want you to listen to me. For nearly 40 years, I've been giving away that $100 bill. I've given it away literally hundreds of times, and that is no exaggeration. I have it in my pocketbook right now, waiting to see who God's going to make me give it to. Some little boy heard me say that the other day and ran up to me after service and said, I believe it's me, Brother Jim. <laughs> You know what I found, folks? I found that if you'll do what's right with God with your little bit, he'll make it go further than you ever dreamed that it would go. He gives us supply what we don't have, sustains what we already have, but now here's the best part. He gives you satisfaction about what you can't have. Aren't you grateful to God that he gives you some peace that you don't have anything and you don't care? I like uh, to read about old preachers. I, I read about an old preacher named Bud Robertson. He was sort of backwoodsy. Folks uh, made fun of his speech. But old Bud Robertson was a great preacher. And somebody told Bud one time, he said, Bud, I want to take you to New York City and show you all the sights. And so they took old Bud Robertson up to New York, showed him all the glitz and glamour of it. And when he got back, one of his friends came to him and said, Uncle Bud... How'd you like New York City? And here's what that old godly preacher said. He said, I saw a lot of pretty things, but thank God 
I didn't see nothing that I wanted. Ladies and gentlemen, when you come to the place where you don't have anything and you don't care, you're in a long way toward being what God wants you to be. That's what Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. We do well to know that, ladies and gentlemen, that when we don't have anything, that's all right because we have God and that's enough for a person to have. The old guy used to write in the, wheel, uh, in the paper in Oklahoma, Will Rogers had a clever little statement. Here's what he said. He said, a lot of people who live in the country today are making plans to move into town so they can make enough money to move out into the country. <laughs> That's where we are today, ladies and gentlemen. We're chasing an elusive dream that we've never been able to find, not realizing that it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us what we don't have, sustains what we do have, and satisfies us about what we can't have. Now, there's one other thing, and this is the part I like best. Not only did he say to refrain from fretting, rely upon his faithfulness, but rejoice in his fellowship. Now, I want to give you just a simple little observation about that verse number four, and I want you to write this down in your memory bank. If you don't remember anything else I say, I want you to remember this. Here's what he says. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Now, I want you to notice what this says. What it says is that if you ever get your desire ahead of your delight, there will never be any delight when you get your desire. Now, let me say that again. That's not just a play on words. That's what he literally said. If you ever get your desires before your delight, then when you get your desires, there won't be any delight in them. How many people do you know that thought they wanted something and craved it and worked for it and stole and lied and cheated to get it, only to find out that what they desired was not what they delighted in. How many men have had good wives, wonderful mothers, and have turned their back to pursue something that thought more desirable only to realize that it didn't meet the hunger of their heart? If I've learned anything in my life, it's simply this. If I will delight in the Lord, He will make it a point to give me whatever the desires of my heart are. And sometimes I don't even know what they are, and you don't know what they are. But he gives them to you. Well, you don't even know that you have them. I want to close with this last word. I don't tell this story much because it's such a personal story. But I grew up in the country. My mom and daddy were sharecroppers. My little old mama... Uh, never went past the second grade in school. She could barely read her name. My daddy was a farmer. We had nothing. We were poor. But my little old mama, for some reason, she didn't have anything. And she didn't seem to care. She just so happy. She just always joyous. And that rubbed off on me. It gave me a, 
a sense of humor that I've, I've been grateful to have because my mama taught me when she didn't have anything that it didn't matter. You could laugh about it. But as my mama grew up, she began to develop some fears that come with being old. And one of them was that she was afraid that she'd have to go to a rest home. Now, let me stop right here and just make a qualifying statement about that. Uh, rest homes today are not what they were in my mama's day. In my mama's day, rest homes were poor houses. As a matter of fact, they called them poor houses sometimes. People would take in elderly people that didn't have a place to live and, and take care of them. That, that, that was what rest homes were in the country years ago. My little mama knew that. But today, rest homes are nice, and they're, they're clean, and they're furnished, and uh, uh, they're, they're just a good place for people to be when they get old. You get married in rest homes sometimes. So if you're looking for a husband or wife, just check in a rest home. You might find something. <laughs> I heard about this old guy the other day who was walking through a rest home, and he went by this old lady in a wheelchair, and she reached out and grabbed him by the pants leg and said, Oh, my gracious, you look like my fourth husband. <laughs> he said, Well, how many times have you been married? She said, Three. So there's hope in rest homes. But we knew how my mama felt. We knew she was afraid. We knew she didn't want to go. But it finally came to the place where we just couldn't take care of her. And we were forced to make that difficult decision that many families have to make. I was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama in a revival meeting on Tuesday night, my little mama is going to the rest home Wednesday morning. And that night, when I got back to my room, I will never forget this. I fell on my face and I said, God, I don't know what to ask you. I don't even know what my desires are. But I delight in you. Here tonight, I delight in you. You give me whatever I want. I don't even know what I want. Early the next morning, my wife took my little mama, drove her down the Sunford nursing home, walked her back to her room. And Carol said, Mama, why don't you get up on the bed and let me fluff up your pillow and see if it fits good. And Carol helped her get up on the bed and fluffed up the little pillow under her head. And Carol said, Mama, how does it feel? And my little mama closed her eyes and went to be with Jesus. She just died. Was that what I wanted? Probably not. But it was what I desired. And God 
knows the difference. So if you'll practice this, I don't know what to ask you, Jesus, but I will delight in you, and you give me the desires. And folks, that's some good news for bad times. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious men and women, these faculties. Lord, we don't know, but I would suspect in the crowd this size, there are a lot of people going through heartaches and troubles and frustrations and irritations. Lord, I pray today that they'll do what you said, delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Lord, bless every student. Bless every faculty member. Bless Dr. Patterson, all of those who lead. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Amen. Thank you.